Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. The show was presented to you today by Gasowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gasowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Adam Gaslowitz, and today we're talking about the impact of real estate title issues. Now it's time to introduce our guest. We're pleased to have with us today Hugh Wood, a partner with Wood and Meredith. Uh, and Wood is an expert in uh, resolving estate and title issues. And uh, Hugh, if you could just tell our audience just briefly what your firm does. so We, we resolve land issues that come to, out of estates and out of uh, partnership disputes. They're very similar clean up the title and try to give people insurable title that they can sell, developer's title. And the issue that we have this morning really are the disasters that come out of of will distributions and intestate, which is where people die without a will, and leave multiple fractional ownership in property. And you, and you litigate over these issues, right? Uh, that's true. I don't plan. I litigate. Okay. That is true. All right. so, so let's just jump in. You say that you deal with the problems. Tell our, tell our listeners what the biggest problem you're seeing right now in real estate issues and when we're dealing with inheritance and transfer. Well, what has been both right now and over decades is fractional interest in land that sometimes people think they're doing the right thing and it turns out to be a litigation nightmare. Tell, tell, our, tell our listeners what fractional interest means. Father creates a will and distributes the farm and the house, or now small commercial shopping centers, to his son and two daughters, thinks he's doing the right thing, and they end up with a third, then they don't get along, and the fractional interest is that where the father owned the whole or his business owned the whole. Now, the sister, you know, the, the daughter owns a third, the son owns a third, and the other daughter who lives in Alaska and could care less owns a third, and then you get huge problems of how to continue the business or how to sell it or partition it. Why is that a problem? Because people historically for 5,000 years haven't gotten along. (laughs) So so who controls the property? If if father leaves a a commercial real estate uh, property to his three children. Who controls that property? Well, they in in that scenario, they control it together. I mean, unfortunately, you get a th- you know a three way ownership. They have to agree on it. Uh, it. Honestly, today you have corporations, partnerships. You tend to get into an ownership um, in the LLCs, which are different. LLCs started in 1977 in Wyoming, and they were recognized in 1994 in Florida by the IRS. And, you, you have a different ownership because you have a managing member and, and members. And, and if, if the sisters or brothers are members, all the power goes to the managing member. And so many problems I see with fractional ownership come in these LLC issues. Let, let, let's, let's back up and kind of divide it up. So I'm a patriarch and have lots and lots of children. This is a fiction. And I own lots and lots and lots of property. <laughs> And I give it to my 14 children with, and what is that called? Is that called tenants in common? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. And my 14 children actually do get along. How do they actually make a decision? Because I think this is the problem. Does it require unanimity? Does, can they just have a vote? What happens? Um, under, under pure tenants in common, any one, I mean, it's just bizarre, any one tenant in common, at least in Georgia law, and it's similar in other states, any one tenant in common may possess the whole 
may collect rents for the whole, may keep them, but they're subject to, and almost no one sues over this until you hire someone like me and we go in and start to figure it out. They have to account for the other 13, 14, you know, the other, in your hypothetical, they have to, if say they're getting a million dollars of rent and one person's keeping it, actually it's pretty common, especially if you have lots of houses that have tenants. One of the things in this fractional ownership is they steal the tenant money. And, and of course, you got to have a contract with the tenants, too. Well, How do you sign a contract with 14 co-tenants? They tend to violate the law, and one co-tenant uh, gets the signatures. The way you would do it is it, you would have to have them all, or they would have to have an agreement. And, and by violate, you mean inadvertently. Because most people don't really know they've got to have everybody who owns the property signing off on the In on my lawsuit, some do it deliberately. But yes, a lot of people do it inadvertently. But you're certainly going to find it when you want to sell because now you're going to need everybody's approval. The selling, usually what drives the lawsuits is a developer offer, is a cash offer, is is some value to the land. Now, in in... In, in a lot of rural areas, not to, to, to disparage them, some land is not worth the dynamite it takes to blow it up. And in, 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 in divided ownership, I've explained to many families that the land is only worth $800 an acre. Why don't you all just settle it? Just resolve it. Go to mediation. So, you know, it's not worth the litigation. You have property in North Atlanta. I got a fractional, I've got an offer for fractional interest this past weekend that is probably going to resolve the litigation. I was actually, what I said to my client is, you better have signed the letter of intent by the time I get back to Atlanta after the holiday. You said, you said that you, that you had an offer on a fractional interest. Can one tenant in common sell his or her interest without someone else's permission? No, they can, the only, they can only commit their own interest. They can sell their undivided interest. They, they just can't. can't give Almost it. no one will buy it. That, that, that's I will the, that's say the problem. in hostility, I have actually, on behalf of clients, gone in and purchased uh, for a client the, the, the half interest or whatever to begin the litigation to get the whole. And when we talk about my 14 kids owning this property, what if my kid in Alaska wants let's, out? Let's how does, it, how let's, does he get out? Let's, let's make say it more four. realistic with five or six. Okay, let's say, let's say five. How, did, how does my daughter in Alaska get out if she wants to get out without the other people agreeing? Uh, you have a, you have generally in all states, Georgia, it's called partition actions. You have to bring a special in the plenary court, in the court that has the, the jurisdiction, most courts are circuit courts. We have superior courts. You actually file this really long, complex, messy lawsuit where, where one person says, I want to sell it. I want my money. Uh, and they own a fifth. And you go through this statutory process, which is way too long to explain here, of valuing the money and then having the court either divided up by sale or going to the courthouse steps, which is very frightening, and have what's like a foreclosure sale. And this works in other states the same way. And you push it off, sell it, and divide the proceeds. You divide the cash. You ultimately have to turn it into cash. If you do that, can some sell and not others? Under our statute after 1983, no. In most states, or no. Some state, under old English common law, yeah, you actually can. The problem with, with a, a partial ownership, which comes down through these wills or comes down through inheritance, which is dying without a will. Lots of people die without a will. And if it's, you get property, if you die without a will, you're going to get a tenant in common interest. 
whatever that is. That is correct. And just to highlight for our listeners, one of the problems that we face is that somewhere along the way, after they've inherited, somebody else dies and they haven't solved the problem. And then somebody else dies and they haven't solved the problem. And now you really have a mess. You have. Um, I remember talking to your partner a month or two ago, and he said we have like 32 or 40 levels below in a sub. And I, I have... I've encountered a lot of mess, but I have not encountered that. Well, as you as you die and pass fractional interest onto your your lineal descendants, you end up with teeny fractions of there fractional. There are many many families in South Georgia who do no planning at all, and there will be large farms, thousand acre farms. The patriarch will die, then it will go to four or five children. They will do no planning. It will they will die, and then and you'll have. A, a valuable piece of property you want to develop. It's usually the, the offer that begins to drive the issue. And how do you do it? So let's go back. So you had said that what that a fractional interest, it can happen through tenants in common. It can also happen through limited liability corporations is, and you said that using an LLC might solve some of the management problems. Explain why that would work. Well, you'd have to have there's a difference between an incorporation, which is going to have its own bylaws and shareholder agreements, but in an LLC, which is much more common, you have an operating agreement. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people's operating agreements, they download off the internet and it's one page and won't tell them anything. If you have an operating agreement that defines how the managing, how the members of the corporation, which historically were stockholders in a, in a regular corporation, you can take sister and brother and sister who you want to distribute the money to and create an operating agreement that says, okay, you're going to inherit the shopping center. The LLC is going to run the shopping center and we're going to use the operating agreement to live on. And corporations have theoretically eternal life. So that will continue past daddy's death. And just to be clear, you're talking about a situation where everybody agrees Either everybody agrees to set up a an LLC and put the property in it, or or the patriarch or matriarch does it before they distribute it down to the next it's generation. It's usually the former. It's the, the matriarch, the patriarch. Now, one of the things that I don't know, kind of going off a little bit, is these family trusts have shown up in the last 10 or 20 years, and they operate at least in terms of management of the, of the corporations kind of the same way. This is the trustee kind of takes control. Yeah, and I, I got one recently, and I, I haven't even counted up how many trusts and subtrusts they have. They have property in Florida. They have property in North Carolina. Um, and, and they had a main trust that was created through a leveraged buyout. They've got multiple subtrusts. I mean, and it, but it will run. One thing that because you have the trust documents— you get to you you get out of my world where I earn money on trying on most of of the litigation that my firm does in resolving the real estate comes from the non-planning. You know, for the folks who are listening to this out in you know the distant internet land, plan for what's going to happen to your property, and if you can see. If you can spot that your children are going to fight, trust me, the, the divorce of the dead occurs if they don't like each other, then then plan for that. Also, you'll find what, what I see a lot is that one person will be a doctor or a developer or have you know this, this career. And then there'll be other people like your hypothetical of the girl in Alaska doesn't care. Some don't even care about the money, but mostly they just say, I want my money. 
I don't want to come back. I don't want to live there. I just want my money. So I wanted to sell so, well, something. Well, for a simple example, just, just to make this clear, you've got a father, mother have a, a vacation home. They want to leave it to their kids. They do no planning, so they leave the vacation home to their, to their three kids equally. They all have equal rights to the property. They've all got equal rights to possess it, right? I've and, got at least two or three of those and, and without cases any, right now. So without any agreement, anybody can go to that house unless they can agree among themselves. They can all show up. They can all occupy the house. They can do what they want. With and who it. pays for it? They all have to pay for it in, in thirds. I mean, I've got one where the, the parties actually agree. And the former executor, because it got set up, the executors just lived on and managed and taken the bills and paid it. In, in one, I mean, I know you're looking at planning and wanting, you know, cashiers in Highlands have a lot of vacation home properties around this area. Hey, that's in North Carolina. They actually have the weirdest organization. It's owned by multiple parties. They keep a checklist of, of almost like timeshares of who's going to live there. That's a terrible way to manage the property because now, as they're getting older, one of them wants to sell, two or three don't want to give up the vacation home, and that lawsuit is brewing. So hadn't let me, come let me, yet. Won't, hadn't been filed yet. Let me distill a little. So the first thing you're saying is don't fall. If you own real estate, whether it be Georgia or not Georgia, don't fall in the trap of just letting it pass without a will. Absolutely. Do planning. And one of the ways to do planning might be a real estate trust, but a logical way is a limited liability corporation. At least you can now control it. Well, if everybody did that, I need to get another job. <laughs> well, that's the, well, we're going to try to stop it. Now, I, think, I think you're safe there. <laughs> let's, let's look at these LLCs. Don't you also have to make sure that you've actually answered some of the problems? For example, how does somebody sell? Does somebody have veto power? How do you make decisions? Is that something that you can control in an LLC? If you do the gonna, to, you, to make an analysis that may be a, a, a bit above a will, a will or the statutes in whatever state people are in, Tennessee, Georgia, Texas, the state code will provide anything that's missing in the will. You know, the, if the will is valid, then it will have terms. I'll answer your LLC question in just a second. So all of that stuff will work if you bring the code onto the will. To do it in LLC. But that may not be really what the decedent oh, it's, wanted. It's a mess. I had one for four mineral properties and interests and cash and, and minerals in, in Texas and Oklahoma and Colorado. Real mess. In the LLC, because that's what you're coming back to, you're, you're going to have to have, and you should get a law firm to do this. You're going to do the same thing in the operating agreement inside the LLC that you would do with the terms of a will. This is all relatively new. I mean, if you look at, at, at law as it develops over two or 300 years, the issue of LLCs is within the last 20 years. I mean, this is, you could do it with inks, you could do it with corporations, but, but LLCs are so easy to set up. Dwight, we were once borrowing money for a client, and the, and the bank said, we can only do this if you all have an LLC in the trunk of your car. My partner turned to me and said, well, Hugh does. He's got a whole bunch of LLCs already pre-made in the trunk of his car. But, 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 if, but if you set it up as an LLC in the parent's generation and put the property into the LLC. It has to be in the, it has to be in the, genera it, 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 it's generally not, the children can do it if they agree. They could create an, an agreement and do that. One problem with LLCs, a real problem, is that the way state law works is that the managing member 
This is not true of corporations. The managing member of an LLC has very substantial power over minority interests so that whoever you're going to empower in the LLC is the power. And you may want to have provisions to solve that problem. So when you go to the lawyer, find out what they want to do and what's kind of standard, but also talk about your family and how they would deal with the problem if it came up and, and talk to the lawyer about the solutions because solutions true. can be included. In, in, what you, in, in the LLC, you can create anything within reason, anything that's legal in the operating agreement to resolve. It's a contract. And it will, it will say, here's, what, here's all the property we own. Here's the method by sale. Here's how you want to sell it. Here's the people you have to have a, a majority interest or not. It's up to you. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Greg Frankel and Adam Gaslowitz from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. Today, we're discussing the impact of real estate title issues. Uh, let me go back to the LLC issue. If, if the parent generation takes property and puts it in an LLC before they distribute it out to their children, uh, there's a basis issue, is there not? Don't they lose what? By basis, you mean a tax issue? A tax issue. The, you, 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 well, you bring the, the, you bring the basis of the property into the corporation as where it is. Now, they tend not to, to, to sell it. I mean, let me, let, let's go over and, and draw the comparison in the non-LLC because that's where I think that the audience needs to see the issue. If the patriarch dies and has, in fact, this is one that I had and bought the property in 1959 for $60,000, and then we get a $4 million offer to sell it in the year 2012, under our current inheritance laws, you get a stepped-up basis. There's no gain. And what does stepped-up basis mean? That you ignore, um, because the government is so kind to us, you ignore the taxes on the difference between, let's say, a $60,000 purchase in 1959 and a $4 million sale in 2012. So in other words, if when you die, the value of the property is the value at the date of death. That is correct. Which reduces taxes in theory. It eliminates taxes. Okay. Okay. And, and one problem, since you're talking about what not to do, hello out there, don't do this. Say you have three, three siblings and mom wanted to, she wanted to solve the problems. So she deeded the property in 2010 to one of the siblings saying, well, we're here to solve all our problems. We won't have this LLC problem. They missed the stepped up basis. So all of a sudden, we had a gain between sixty thousand and four million, which we had to pay tax on. Had they died and gotten Mama's stepped-up basis, zero tax. So one of the questions you need to ask your lawyer when you're doing your estate planning is, how is this going to affect me? Whether it be an estate tax or really right now, whether it be a capital gain tax. Yes. Okay. Now get take us to the LLCs. What's the difference? You can keep, generally, you keep the basis in the LLC. You, you, so if you own property in an LLC when you die, does the property get a step up in basis? No. Does the LLC get a step up in no. basis? Is there any way to accomplish that through an LLC? Not that I'm aware of. So really, when we're talking to our listeners, one of the key issues deciding whether to use an LLC versus a trust or something else or, or through inheritance, is talking about the tax ramifications. That's Absolutely. And, and I tend not, because I don't do the tax planning on the front end, I tend that these issues come to me. And by the way, even though we continue to talk about the LLCs, I see that rarely. I mean, in other words, 
the, the disasters that come, that's planning. And, and the planning is not there. What, what is more common that is people misplan with, with, with these new family trusts, although that is money, they misplan with disastrous real estate trusts. Dear listeners, please don't go download things off the internet and dump your property into internet real estate trusts. Just total disaster. Or, By the way, that's an advice for virtually everything dealing with transfer, whether it be a real estate trust or a will. We see wills and trusts that left things off that create absolute weird results that end up litigating over that no one wanted. Use a lawyer. I'll probably have lost count of the number of downloaded wills that people use to skip paying a few hundred dollars to a lawyer and create literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of disaster for their family because, the, as, you, as you indicated, the will's a complete mess. Let, let's switch topics. Um, a lot of our listeners, hopefully, have houses and vacation homes that may not be in the state in which they live. Does that create problems? Well, we're not supposed to talk about technical terms, but it creates a problem of ancillary probate. What does that mean? That means that that if you fall into the evil world of probate, that the will is generally docketed in what's called the domiciliary uh, state or the state where the person who wrote the will dies. And then that state has the jurisdiction over the will and over probate. But if the land is in Florida or Alabama, I believe California is mandatory, when do you want to go sell that vacation home or sell that property? Uh, Florida has a statute, uh, Florida Statute 734, that you have to open an ancillary probate in that estate to resolve this issue. And if you had planning, you could do it through a trust, or you could do it through an LLC and skip this whole issue. But if if it's probate, then you got through probate in the first state where the where the testator dies. Then in mandatory states, you then have to open a little estate probate and, and do it. And and one of the and that's issues, just so you can transfer title to the property. It's generally always real estate. It does have issues with investment accounts, but ninety nine percent is always dirt, is always the vacation home, the condominium, the property. The, you tend not to see commercial properties because commercial properties are, are more designed with incorporations and, and the, I tend not to see operating commercial businesses in this. This is always the fruits of, of daddy's labor, mama's labor that is is then off to the children. So, so if you've got property in, in other states, you have a vacation home in North Carolina or Florida, do you, is there any way to avoid the probate that you'd have to go through in that second state when you try and distribute the... Uh, if it's a mandatory ancillary probate, no, in uh, Georgia... If, if, a, you, if you take the property and put it in, say, a, a revocable trust, would that You avoid can do that. Okay. You can use a revocable trust to skip probate. So properties that you own in other states, if you live in Georgia, for example, and you own property in Florida, uh, if you have that property in a revocable trust, then, then the you property... You can skip would, it. Now, the, most of these, and you know this, most of the, the provisions of revocable trust become irrevocable upon death. Sure. And so then if the kids think like, oh, we could do what we want with the house when daddy dies, the vacation home in Sarasota, Florida, which is one, you all had one at Naples I know we dealt with, that, that when it becomes irrevocable, then you get into the, the trust litigation. 
and and to 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 and but at least there's somebody that that is identified who's going to control it. It's going to be whoever is designated as the trustee. True. Now there is a problem that we deal with in many states is that you get on a parallel track where you're if you have, you're litigating the trust in the superior court and the probate court has the wills and it's here that's just unresolvable. What about um, property that is in uh, um, community property states? A lot of people move here from say California or, or other states where they might have community property. Um, George happens? is a title state. Most states are title states. Louisiana, Texas, New Mexico, Nevada, California. Uh, skip Oregon, Washington, Alaska is an opt-in state, and Wisconsin, God knows why Wisconsin are community property states. Those are the community property states. It's almost like the old Spanish curve from Mexico are community property states. Everybody else is a title state. If you inherit community property state, it overcomes. In Georgia, we have a statute that says if you bring separate property to the marriage or whatever, it's your property. Community property state, you have to account for the joint ownership. And so if you die owning community properties, what happens? It's, there's a, there is a presumption that your spouse owns a part of it. Okay. Even if you die in Georgia? Yeah, when the ancillary probate, you're going to get that issue in the ancillary probate in California. Uh, what, what happens when you, um, if you own property jointly with, say, a spouse and you have debtors? People that you owe money to. They always, they always do. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, 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 so you have a creditor. You own property jointly with your wife. You default on a debt that you have. What right does the creditor have to go after jointly owned property? You get into to, to some of the issues that we started with on tenancy by the entireties, joint tenants, the right of survivorship. Uh, if well, we don't have a death situation. We do have a death situation here. Uh, well, even even without a death, I mean, if, you, if you and your spouse own jointly owned uh, property. Um, and you have a creditor. The creditor can levy on all of his tenants in common. I mean, um, there is they have to account for the other half of the interest in a sale. Um, so in other words, they would sell it. They get to keep half towards the debt, and the other half would go to the other owner. And I, I did and still do a fair amount of litigation in foreclosure. And one of the big surprises to lenders, which is a great defense for us, is the lender goes to foreclose and finds out the wife never signed any of the documents. And at the end of the foreclosure, they have a half interest instead of a whole interest. And it allows us to really negotiate against them. Although some states are better. Florida is much better to suffer a foreclosure than Georgia. Georgia is unfortunately lender's paradise, and there are few defenses to a foreclosure from a lender. Um, Say say, say that again and explain it, because I think that's a big deal. It is a big deal, and it is a real hammer. Georgia— is a very lender-friendly state. We also just uh, eliminated the Depression-era uh, <clears throat> deficiency where you can challenge for the amount of money of a foreclosure. Um, there are almost no defenses once you get into foreclosure. It's very hard to stop. Only Chapter 13 or Chapter 7 will stop a bankrupt. Theoretically, and I've done some of you can go get a TRO. It doesn't work. It's only good for 30 days. You have to get a permanent injunction. Mostly you have to pay the money into court. If you could pay the money into court, you wouldn't have the foreclosure, so it's kind of circular. If there is a half interest that is not signed in, in this, which occurs, and it's usually either the husband didn't sign or the wife didn't sign on the security deed, which are trustees in other states, we have four methods of securing property in Georgia, then when the bank foreclosed or the lender foreclosed, and a lot of these are private foreclosures, the 50% remains out there. 
pr prior to the show, we were talking and you said that one of the big risks was obviously the foreclosure that you discussed, but also failure to pay taxes and what happens on tax liens. You could do an entire show on taxes. I mean, the whole, the, the, if the- You're talking about property taxes now. Proper, this is real, this is ad valorem property tax. This is not your income tax, not your capital gains tax. It's not what you file in your 1040. These are the county property taxes that always travel with real estate. And as far as I know, every county in every state, they're always there. And the, the mechanisms work differently. If you fail to pay the property taxes, over time, you can lose it. And in Georgia, if, there, if first you get a FIFA, you get a levy by the county, then it eventually gets sold and you have a, a, a year redemption period. If you don't pay it, you lose it. And also all the, the issue that I think that is important, what we're talking about here, all the co-tenants lose, all the heirs lose. It's not a fractional loss. It's a complete loss. So everybody loses the whole, all of those 14 heirs that you were talking about, the tax issue will clean the property out like a foreclosure and the property's gone. So, and it's really the only reason that banks require, if you think about it, banks require an escrow on, why is it they require an escrow? Because it's the only thing really, except for a federal tax lien that can get in front of their first lien and kill you and kill them. So got to pay your taxes. Uh, if you have, well, in Georgia, I don't know about other states, in Georgia, other people can come in and pay your taxes, can they not? Yes. And essentially buy your tax lien. Vesta and Proctor have been, well, it started in 1985 in Georgia. And yes, um, uh, people come in and pay the liens and then they step into the shoes of the county. They have the same rights uh, paying the liens. Only two counties in Georgia allow the sale of what's called the FIFA or the levy, but in the in the sale on the courthouse steps, and this occurs in Florida, this occurs in Alabama, it occurs in other states that once it's sold, it goes to the other parties. Now we we have we're a very harsh state in Georgia in terms of redemption. Florida, I believe, has a thirty six. When you month. say redemption, what is that? That means that after the sale occurs, it's not all is not lost. That you have to go pay the taxes plus a 20% penalty plus a 10%. There are lots of penalties to get your property back. So say if you intend say you owe 15, $20,000 of unpaid taxes, you might be in a situation that to recover your property, you have to pay $40,000 to the pirates who bought it to be able to recover it to the family. I don't know what to, to call folks in disorganized families, who tend not to write wills, much of the property that is that is decayed or delinquent simply disappears in tax sales. Yeah, we see a lot of that. We see Very that. common. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Craig Frankel and Adam Gaslowitz from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. And today we're discussing the impact of real estate title issues. Uh, let me follow up on one, one thing I started to ask you a little earlier. Um, with regard to jointly owned property where one of the uh, owners of the property has, has a debt, if that person dies, does the property passes by operation of law to the surviving joint property owner. What happens to the debt? Does the creditor still have the right to go after the property? Yes, and it depends on... You can, you can only sell or, or mortgage up what you own. 
So if the other tenants in common, the other fractional owners, don't, they're not subject to that. So the, the, if the lender sells the property, the lender can sell the property. Well, so assuming that before the lender has done anything, the, 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 the debtor dies. Husband, and, and, husband, and there are husband, other people husband, who own it who are not committed to the debt. Yes. Okay. Husband and wife. Husband and wife own a piece of property. Husband has a huge credit card debt. They have no other assets. Husband dies. Property passes to the wife as, as the joint tenant. What happens to the credit card debt? Can the credit card company go after the property or the husband's half of the property that he owned before he died? Well, in the analogy you posed, credit card debt has to go through a judgment. Like you have to go, you can't, because it's generally not secured by the property. It means the property doesn't stand for that debt. Credit card debt has to travel through a judgment lien. Then you levy on the property and sell the property. Almost, almost you never see that through credit. What you see it is secured debt, that the property is set up for secured debt. One or two parties in your interest won't have signed that debt. The lender can sell it, but it, the lender has to account for any excess proceeds. Sometimes there aren't excess proceeds. has to account for the non-sale interest. Now, in, in Georgia... As you and as you and I well known on other cases, after 1981, you don't have to foreclose on the secure secure property. I think it's Thompson v. Watkins. You just go sue on the promissory note. So a lot of lenders, if they get frustrated about this property issue or this fractional interest, they just sue on the on the promissory note and go get their judgment levy. Now, if you have a judgment levy, can you take the property even from the co-tenants who didn't sign the deed? Yes, but you have to. It's always like. Imagine that the property theoretically gets turned into a pile of cash. So you have to account for, you can take what you're owed by that the, the people who sign, and you have to account for the other interests that you don't have. By the way, it's not really common. It does happen. Some people do do it. It, it generally arises if there's lots of equity. We've got one right now where the, the debt's probably eighty or 90000 we are in a pitched battle trying to stop that, and the equity is probably four hundred thousand in terms of the huge growth of the value of the property, and and the debt is driving. The, I mean, the equity is driving the lawsuit because nobody planned for it. Does, does it matter whether the debt is, is associated with the property? In other words, Absolutely. you gave a security deed to buy the property versus you gave a security deed for another loan to buy a, well, we're, a we're technical what's the security deed no i mean i know i mean the, you mean like a, a a mortgage or a trust deed or you or you set up the property for that absolutely when the when the when the property is pledged the real estate it's always real estate is pledged for this instrument which in georgia we call security deed in north carolina virginia i'm licensed to virginia but in all these other states it's a trust deed Almost always, they go chase the property by foreclosure or by levying on it or selling it. What what happens? That's, what, what if I own a piece of property and and Craig is trying to take out a loan? He has no collateral, so I offer to to use my collateral for his loan, and he uh, defaults on the loan. They'll obviously the answer out. is done. Well, the answer is done. Sure, the, but the, but people do. And we've had clients who have done that. I, so so the, the so the lender is going to come and take the property because that was the collateral. But but. Craig is still really kind of what you posed is, and these are very scary, and these are also planning issues. People do not get, please do not become guarantors unless you truly understand what you're doing. I see there are. I think we can agree. Adam did not understand. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm talking to the to the audience that what what happens is um, a a daughter will will need money for college or need something, or they they will go and and father or uncle will 
just think like, well, there's no big deal. And he will sign a personal guarantee first backed by the property, then backed by his assets. I've, I've, I've been to the court of appeals numerous times trying to get out of that. The lender guarantees are brutal. And they're also in other states. So the lender can just go against the property because that's where he chooses, he, it chooses to do it. Yeah, but then what they do with the guarantee, usually because they're personal guarantees, is they then begin to invade other assets to make them whole because the, the debt exceeds the property. And those lawsuits are, are just ugly beyond ugly. Let's ask the question kind of differently. So Adam did, in fact, guarantee me from my personal loan. It gets foreclosed. Can Adam then sue me to get the money back? Yes, but because you're broke, because you went through the judgment issue first, I mean, it's a it's sort of a nonsensical circle because it, it would have been paid in the litigation. Yes, the answer is the law provides a remedy. The right. remedy is he can sue you. Will it actually occur? Will he get the money? No. Well, in that situation, perhaps it doesn't make any sense. But we have seen situations where Someone secures a piece of, of someone secures someone else's loan with mm -hmm. their property. The person who they're securing the loan for makes payments on the loan and then dies. So right. the loan wasn't in default until they died. Now someone takes over their estate and they don't pay the loan. So my property gets foreclosed on. At that point, there's probably assets in the estate. I can go after the estate to collect on the uh, debt, right? It's not my debt. It's based it's on the, the way you pose the question. Yes. Yeah. Let me kind of shift the, the, the questions a little. Um, we talked about property that's outside a state. Some of our you mean a, a state of the union, not an estate. Correct. Okay. And now, what about property that's owned in another country? Does that create different issues? Yeah, and and mostly, it falls into an area of conveyance. Or, I mean, the only reason that we would pose this is you have someone in the United States that wants to deal with transfer, and you got a death out of the country. Um. In, in ancillary probate or in a Georgia probate versus Minnesota, Georgia, and Alabama, you to, to sell a piece of property, you need the deed. A deed has to have the person who's selling plus two witnesses and, and one of generally a notary, but you, but you can have an unrecorded deed with two witnesses. And if you're coming from another state with probate, you attach the sworn probated uh, letters testamentary, uh, which an executor gets, and generally the will. And then you can convey, there's a statute under Chapter 53 and Chapter 44 in Georgia, you can convey the property. A little different in the foreign country. Um, if you're dealing with organized foreign countries, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, not a big problem. You follow their procedures. You get not only the probate material from that country, but you have to get under our statute, you have to get the local court who has control to say, they, they put a special seal on it and say, we are the court in Queensland over this probate. They did it correctly. We stamp it. You have to have that additional certified copy of the federal to then put on our records to convey the property. That's really the only difference. One, one last question. What's the biggest real estate problem mistake that you've seen in your career? 7,000 acres of Georgia marble where they conveyed it to 10 fractional interests of the entire marble belt in Georgia with underground value and timber value and service. The, 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 the non-planned, it's a lot of times the patriarch doesn't want to give it up. And so it just happens by operation of law. And suddenly 10 wealthy families have a lot of value, a lot of timber. We haven't even talked about timber. 
uh, underground mineral rights, surface mineral rights, and there is absolutely no way to resolve it outside of lawsuits. Oh, another issue that you can do on some of these, and particularly in the LLCs, and this is relatively new, is arbitration clauses. And and it's it's developing. I mean, it really is just as a of, way to have impasse resolution to solve a problem when it comes up. Right. And the arbitration, I've had good results that arbitration will take you into a three to six month resolution instead of our four, six, eight, twelve. So one case one case lasted seventeen years. So so what we're hearing is use planning. And when you use planning, put in impasse resolution to help you when there's a conflict. Yes. Let's last the my very last question. Audience wants to get in touch with you. How do we get in touch with you? Um, uh, go to my website, www.woodandmeredith.com, or call me at 404-633-4100 in Atlanta, and be glad to talk to you about estate, uh, mostly real estate, estate title issues, planning, creating a will, um, what happens if you have a fractional ownership, and how to stay out of court. As we are wrapping up our show... I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com and remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guest today was Hugh Wood, a partner with Wood and Meredith. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.